2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
3: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Sets Podcast. My guest today is Derek Schulman known as the lead singer of Gentle Giant and the man who signed Bon Jovi, Cinderella, Slipknot, so many other acts.
4: Derek, good to have you here. Nice to be here with you, Bob. It's been a long time.
3: Absolutely. So uh, there was recently a fan video of Proclamation, a Gentle Giant song. How did that come together?
4: It came together, actually, from my son, uh, who um, has been bugging me since uh, he was born, actually. about uh, um, And he's uh, in his mid-30s, not having seen his father actually be a, a person on the stage. And having seen me on the other side of the business and, and knowing that uh, I was a musician before I was, I joined the dark side of the business as it were. And in the last few years, he's been seeing videos of me back in the day, 40 plus years ago. And uh, he said, what? And, 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 uh, and it's bizarre that the fan base that we had has grown exponentially. Um... You know, it was it was kind of a smallish cultish fan base, but it's grown exponentially on the internet. And he said, "You should really do a a, a reunion of some kind." I said, "Noah, uh, his name is Noah. Uh, that's not going to happen." He's I've been all far. I don't need to do that kind of stuff. But he said, "So you've got a lot of fans. Let's try this out." And I said, "Go for it if you want to." And in fact, he got he put the word out to the uh, to the fan base out there and. Um, he had hundreds of people sending their versions of uh, Proclamation. And he convinced me, finally, to sing a line or two. And the other guys in the band who were alive, which generally they are, <laughs> except for our, uh, our, our drummer who passed away, our first drummer, quite a few years ago, to, to include our own little piece in the, in the video. So uh, we did that. He put it together. My brother Ray mixed the audio. And Noah put this uh, video up. And, um, and in effect, Prog Magazine uh, got involved and said, this is great, we love this. And, and now it's got a lot of views and uh, it's kind of interesting that, that my band, <laughs> which I left and we, we broke up 40 years ago, is probably more um, well-known, if you like, and more sort of... Uh, uh, have a have a bigger fan base than when we did when we were going at the, at the at the time so it's it's kind of bizarre but it was his idea and and he put it together and my brother ray who does a lot of audio stuff for a lot of other bands 5.1 mixes he did the uh, the audio mixes which which was damn difficult by the way so i i, I just said yeah it sounds like a good idea so i'm not going to take any credit for it
3: okay why do you think your audience is so large and larger than it was 40 years ago
4: Lots of, lots of answers to that question. I think that, um, that it's, it's going to sound trite and it's going to sound uh, I hope not pretentious, but I think the music held up. It, it, was, an, it was music which was authentic. It was music that um, I, we did for ourselves rather than following a lead or following another band and saying, let's play like this. We were a band that put our, our own selves together and put a band put our, our, our backgrounds and, and our, our loves of what kind of music influences together and became gentle giant i mean obviously i came from a i started being in a band in the mid-60s when i was a school so we we went through a lot of a lot of things but uh, i think that i think that the music held up and has held up because it's um I hate to use a word that but it sounds like a pretentious word, but it's not. It says it has, it really does have authenticity and and it doesn't sound like anyone else. We did never try to sound like anyone else. Of course, we all had influences personally of what we loved and we draw dragged in those influences into the band and the band, those influences were stirred into a pot, if you like, and became gentle giant.
3: Okay. Uh, Today, and I know everybody hates being labeled, Gentle Giant was certainly seen as prog rock. Prog rock has a bad name in general. In addition, rock is not dominating the charts. Is this a passé style, or is there room for prog rock in today's world?
4: Bob, you know what? We never considered ourselves prog or, or, or rock, yes, uh, but prog, no. Uh, we just did what we did, and luckily and thankfully, we did. We were we put our band together at a time when there was no uh, titling. Uh, there was no Chiron saying this is the kind of band you are. We were just a band that put our music our, again our our influences and our who we were together, and um, we made music that we enjoyed, and we pushed ourselves musically, uh, personally for each other. Um, and then we, when we pushed ourselves musically for each other, we took it on stage, and hopefully one or two people would show up and pay money, and we'd make a living for it. So being labeled as a prog rock band, I don't think we ever considered what we were. We rocked because we, had, we enjoyed rocking. We, our, our backgrounds, my background certainly, is in R&B and blues and everything else, and my, my brothers were classical, etc., etc. et cetera, et cetera. But uh, as far as being uh, um, relevant today, it, for me, it doesn't really matter. I don't care. But obviously, the way I've seen it uh, and the way that what's transpired on the internet, it seems to, me, it seems to be um, a little more relevant today than it used to be, actually, in, in a strange way. And because it's interesting to see the... the. Uh, who sent in the music to, for this video, which you mentioned. And I would say three-quarters, if not seven-eighths of the, the people that sent in their musical uh, um, pieces were, were people who were, are under 35. So we're not talking about old farts going back and saying, you know, trying to pick up the guitars and their arthritis getting in the way of them playing their, uh, their instruments. It was young people listening to the music we made and. Enjoying it and and, and um, enjoying it for a reason, and I guess the reason was because it was relevant to them. So I don't know if this answering a question or giving you an answer, but um, passé. I, I don't think so. I think that if it's it's the, it's the same as it's the same as great jazz. It's a great. It's the same as great um, dance music. it's the same as great musical great classical music it stands the test of time and I think from what I see I hope that our music has st- stood the test of time um which for me is kind of bizarre because I as you know I in 1981 I joined the dark side of the business as you as we just as you just introduced me to uh, and um the interesting thing that I've discovered and known and really is very very interesting to me because as you know we've talked over the years about what this business is and and who we are and how we are how we get along in this crazy world of ours and right now it's the craziest time um having done most things in the business if you like what people come back to and this is me personally what people come back to for me is the music it's not about the business it's not about record sales It's not about who's big and who's not. It's not about, you know, all the other means of hearing the streaming and this, that, and the other TikToks and and et cetera. It's about the music. And when people talk to me, it's not about Bon Jovi or, 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 or Slipknot or Pantera or whatever. It's about what I did when I was a musician. And that's very heartening for me, actually.
3: Okay, so how did you decide to give up being a musician and go to the dark side?
4: Well, that's another story again, because uh, as I explained to you prior, um, the uh, Gentle Giant, we started the Gentle Giant in 1970, but I started uh, my first group in, when I was at school in 1966. Uh, and that was an incredible period, I have to say. Uh, my first group was a, a group called Simon Dupree and the Big Sound. I was at school, my brother was at school, my elder brother was a school teacher. We put a band together, and we, we loved R&B and, and blues and everything else, like most of the other classic rock bands of today did, and we went on the road. And even though we were, I was at school, we went on the road and worked nine days a week, literally, uh, getting a fan base and eventually having a couple of very big hits. Um, those hits uh, became... Uh, were were uh good for us in certain respects but became a millstone around our necks because we were expected to be a pop band and stay in the same groove so i decided we decided i'll give you a long story and if if, it, if it's too long please no, no, me no, no. i'll interrupt you if it's too long keep going so um in 1970 uh when we broke the first band up um it was uh, a decision that we were stymied by the fact that we were a pop band and that and that really stopped us, uh, you know, doing something new. when we were playing to a uh, an audience who were eating scampi and chips, you know, and waiting for the hits that really got, kind of got to me more than anyone. So I said, I'm, I'm, we, we don't want to do this anymore. Thankfully, we had a manager. And this is back in the day when managers believed in musicians. Um, we had a manager that um undertook to uh finance a new project that we said we want to put together um and his name was jerry Braun, and i give him full credit for this uh he he put money into our pockets for weekly monthly salaries because he believed in us as musicians so we found three other musicians this is my myself and my two other brothers um who we want who we wanted to do something again new. We didn't know what it was, but it was wasn't going to be what we were. We wanted to be the antithesis of this pop thing, which we got out of. Um, and other bands were doing it at the very same time. I, I mentioned, uh, you know, bands like The Move, The Idol Race, Moody Blues. Uh, oh boy, there's so at that period of time, the mid '60s to the late to the late '60s to the '70s, all in England, it was an incredible time. It just I can't I can't describe how amazing it was and then from the, in the mid early mid 70s uh everything changed but it was in uk where it was it was so relevant and so obvious anyway so we became a uh, gentle giant we took about six six months in rehearsals and uh, we found this keyboard player called Kerry meneer who uh, was a a recent graduate of the royal academy of music uh in composition actually and gary green who was a real blues player? I mean, he was, uh, you know, he came in and wailed away. And in fact, he was the very first. Uh, we 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 uh, interviewed. We interviewed. I don't know how many guitarists, maybe 35 40 And he was the very first one that said, "Can I tune up?" So he got this. <laughs> he got a kind of a a gold star next to his name. And um, we went through a couple of drummers. But the bottom line is, so we we spent about six to nine months recording, uh, rehearsing, and writing. And, and putting this band together and putting uh, our first, and then going into the studio, and I think November of 1970 with Tony Visconti, uh, as this group called Gentle Giant. Uh, and um, It was really a, a, an amalgam of different kinds of music, different kind of influences that we came from, and, and, and our newfound friends slash um, band members, became what Gentle Giant became, and it was a really kind of a, the birth of a realization, if you like. That's the first song of a, a song called Giant, and that was where we were. That was the first um, first recording of the ten year pro, ten year career of uh, being a big Gentle Giant.
3: Yes, but uh, we're leading up to the question: How did you decide to pack it in as a musician?
4: Oh yes, you did say that. Well, as a musician in 1980, um, so. 1970 was all wow, this is amazing and we, and then we went through this again, bands go through these bands bands and I think everyone goes through a seven generations of band if you like you're born, you're born, you're an adolescent, you become you become a, a young adult, you become an adult, you become middle aged, you become older, and you become old. We became a little old uh towards the late seventies, and I just felt it creatively and even um the passion of going out in front of a crowd and I remembered the last tour the idea of going out and playing the songs and and recording it was a whole it was a whole sort of cycle of things you record you rehearse you tour you record you rehearse you tour and and as I said that's what I brought up my, my prior a gentle giant life, if you like, because i 'd done it for fifteen years, and I remembered that we were touring the USA again and playing Peoria or Wayne you know, Wayne, Indiana, or Fort Wayne, Indiana, should they say, and the, and these kind of places held no no um, no sort of uh, excitement for me, and when something feels like a job and it felt like we were going out on a job, it really kind of feels like it 's time to stop and, and I would say this. To anyone, no matter what your job is, and I know most people cannot do this, but the fact the fact that a creative person would go out and say, "Oh God, we have to tour again," and okay, we have to get together in Buffalo and and play the Buffalo gig, you know, it was like, "Do we have to?" Yes, I guess we have to do it because we have to make a living. But when when you feel that way in a creative world that's the time to stop because you're not being creative. You're not, you're not using any passion. It's, it's like clocking in and clocking out. And that's, I kind of knew it. And I think some of the other members knew that it was like, okay, it feels like we're doing the same thing over and over again, unless we did something completely different, which I don't think we were able to do other bands of our ilk like yes. And Genesis were, they were able to take their music into a pop direction. We never could. So it felt like a job, and when it feels like a job, we said, that's it, time to stop. And we did.
3: Okay, well, was everybody on the same page? How long did it take to come to this conclusion? As you say, you've been doing it 15 years, and you are only 30 years old.
4: Um, Yeah, two or three of the band uh, came to the same conclusion. A couple of the other guys were not of the same uh, opinion. But nevertheless, it was... It You know, what what I didn't want to do, what, what I never want to do, and what I think my brothers never want to do, and perhaps the other guys in the band want to do and wanted to do, is become a parody of who you were and who you are, and to rehash the same things that you're doing over and over again. So, you know, it was a chapter. It was a fantastic chapter, and they all are, all, all pieces of life. But it was not something I, I wanted to go out and and do the same thing. When it feel, again, when it feels like a job, when it feels like you're clocking in and clocking out in the creative world, for me, I, you know, for me, it didn't work. and I, I had to stop. Otherwise, okay. it would have been miserable. When
3: you did stop, did you already have it in your mind what you were going to do next, or you just said, I can't do this
4: anymore? Bob, I had no clue. I had absolutely no clue. I, I knew I didn't want to do that anymore. I knew I didn't want to do the circus of touring and, and this and that, the other. That I knew. Uh, I had the opportunity to, re- to record, to be a producer. That didn't tickle my fancy either. I mean, I, I enjoyed being in the studio and working with the guys, but that really had no interest for me either, to be locked into a, a room 24-7, which had no darkness. So for a year or so, I had no clue. I was lost, to tell you the truth. And then a friend of mine.
3: Well, just to stay there, since you were on the road to earn a living, for the, did you have enough money to not work for a year?
4: It's, believe it or not, thankfully, uh, I did. It's, it's, it's strange to say this, but I, we were lucky, I guess lucky, in the respect that um, I took on the mantle halfway through the 70s of becoming this quasi-manager. Uh, and, and, and the guy that understood what it took on the other side of the fence as well as being part of the band. In retrospect, um, it's a mistake. It was a mistake because you lose on one side because you're, not, you're, you're in the band so you can't give a real objective viewpoint on that being a manager. At the same time, you're in the band so you can't give your 100% uh, attributes to being creative. However, what it did was, uh, again, set me up for what I did next in, 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 a, in a way that I think um, did, you know, did me okay. So I was able to make sure that the band had enough money, again, because I was looking after the monies coming in for the group, that we all shared it equally and knew where it was as opposed to going in other people's pockets. So yes, I was able to, you know, get along and not work per se, if you like, for a year or so, and, and wonder what the hell I was going to do. However, you know, after a year and a half or whatever, it was going to get it was going to get hairy. So thankfully, um, so to answer your question, that that's exactly what it was. But I got a call from a friend, um, in New York, who I knew from the uh, UK. He was the head of. Um, polygram uh, international who worked for personal records who we were signed to back in the day and he said have you ever thought about joining you know a record company and, and that was like an ana- anathema to me you know what are you talking about that's the enemy but in certain respects um as you as you <laughs> as you put it so so uh you know clinically um i had to make a living so I thought, well, you know what? Let me, let me see. Let me give it a shot. So I went up to New York. I was living in California at the time, um, which I hated, by the way. Um, and um, went up to New York and um, got offered a job as uh, a promotion man, of all things, and an artist development, but promotion primarily. Um,
3: but that's a grind being a radio promotion person.
4: Well, the reason that I was hired to tell you the truth, uh, was because the guy who, was, who hired me, Jerry Jaffe, an operated to him, um, he what, the reason why he hired me, and this is, again, getting back to the prior lifetime, if you like, was because two of my biggest fans, or the biggest fans of the group, were Lee Abrams and Jeff Pollock. And Lee Abrams, of course, as you probably know, was a consultant to one of the biggest radio station uh, consultants, and he was a big fan, and, and, and Jeff uh, had, a, had another consultancy for radio. And I guess Jerry thought, boy, if, he, if Derek can get to him, then, then we're all set. Well, of course, that didn't work. Uh, but, <laughs> but nevertheless, I think that's why I got the gig. Um, but thankfully, I segged very quickly into something which I enjoyed more was amusing. But that's the reason, to tell you the truth, the reason why I got the gig in the first place.
3: Okay, so then it transmogrifies into the music. What does that look like?
4: Well, it was it was interesting because having been on the road uh, and been a musician, I knew a lot of the musicians and bands and everything else. So, a lot of people, managers and and uh, managers especially, would come in. They would go to the A department, and at that time, PolyGram was kind of a bit of a mess. It was like it was a, they were still trying to put Phillips and. And and Siemens together to make a real company, and in certain respects it was kind of like a free for all, and it was there was no real sort of uh, top down leadership. It was more from the inside, and there was a group of us saying, let's 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 make this company, let's do something interesting here, and there was a there was already a cattle. It was already a few bands in, in the in the in the um, roster, like Kiss, like uh, um, Def Leppard, etc. There were just bubbling under, and um, I uh, was uh, again Jerry Braun, who was my manager at at uh, for Gentle Giant, um, came in with my very first A and R thing, if you like. Was he came in with a, a new Uriah Heat record? He didn't go to the A and R department. He went came to me said, "Derek, do you think you can, uh, you know, you can convince any, anyone that's worth putting out?" I said, "Let me hear it." And they had a couple of songs on the album. Uh, One song was called That's the Way That It Is. And the other song was called On the Rebound. And I said, I think this could do well. And in fact, I helped them get a deal. And in fact, that song became a decent-sized hit and put them on the road again to being a a band that was kind of meaningful in the U.S. and and sold quite a lot of records. So that made me think about segging into the A&R world, which I did. Very quickly, since since then, so I started promotion, but effectively went into A and R virtually straight away. I mean, with six months to a year. I was in A and R, but I still retained my, you know, my radio people, friends, and everything else. So, you know, I was able to do all these things at the same time, knowing the bands and musicians uh, and and everything else. The so one thing that one the one thing I, I just remembered uh, was as is that. The bands and the artists and the managers who came in would remember me from the road because i was i was on the road until a year or two ago uh prior to that and and um they knew that they couldn't say well you don't know what it's like to do this or here we are doing this because i yes i i did know what it's like i knew what it was like to to sleep in a van i knew what it was like to live in a to to, to fly in concord i knew what it was like to sleep on a floor before a gig so the one thing I had going for me, and I think those managers and musicians appreciated the fact that I didn't come from a world where, where I was just hanging out backstage wishing I was on stage. Um, so I think I could relate to the managers and artists in a way that most other people couldn't.
3: Okay, so how did that lead to, after Uriah Heep, what came next?
4: Believe it or not, Bon Jovi.
3: So tell us the story of Bon Jovi
4: well that was a on um, that was the first literally the first signing as a quote a and r man that i had and in fact uh it, the man the the attorney uh of Bon Jovi at the time was a guy based in philadelphia, and i'd heard a song on w a p p called runaway uh you know that was running at the same time as 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 i you know i was listening to that and and I heard this song Runaway, and I said, Boy, that's, that sounds great. And somebody introduced me to whoever it was, John Bon Jovi, who was Tony Bon Jovi's second cousin who was at the power station. He recorded it. A guy called Arthur Mann. He was an attorney, and he said, You've heard, I've heard, you've heard, you like this song Runaway. Can I bring you some demos? And he said, I said, Sure, by all means. So he brought four demos to me, and he said, John is great. Um, he's putting a band together. Um, and um i listened to the demos and i said they sound pretty good but i really like runaway i'd like to meet john and he, so i did and and he was he was like no not too many other people i've met in my life uh this is prior to him putting his band together he's still putting the band together um i think that uh dave sabo had just left and i think richie was just coming in um but john i met and um I've never seen anyone as, as young, been so focused and driven. I mean, we're talking about someone who uh, was very was a novice. So he's still working at the power station, uh, sweeping forward, So he said, which he wasn't, by the way. Um, there's a lot of bubbles to burst here. So uh, <laughs> burst away. <laughs> uh, he was—he was—he was a. was, he was uh, he, as a sinecure. He was. He was was playing around with the board when Tony wasn't looking, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, um, he got his job from from his second cousin. John was was one of the most driven people I've ever met in my life, even as a kid. Um, And um, he said, I want you to meet my mom and dad. So I went to Saraville, New Jersey and met his mom and dad. Uh, And I did. And, and And they said, look, if you're interested in working with John, please take care of him. That's and they, they really did. And and um, why do you think he wanted you to meet his parents? Because I think he believed in me, and I think he wanted to make sure his parents felt the same way. And okay. and, and and you know, I, I believed in, in John as a personality, as a person that was completely driven to be the he really believed he was going to be bigger than Elvis, and that was after one song, Runaway. And anyone who has that confidence, and you, and you look at someone whose eye, you look at someone in the eye and think, are they bullshitting me or not? He was not bullshitting me. I knew that instinctively. I know that. And he wanted to be the biggest. And and I thought, if he wasn't that bad and he's that driven, I want to be part of this. Um. So he was. He put the band together and did a couple of showcases for me. And and the department, you know, one of the, one or two of them weren't that great. But you can see that John, was, John had an appeal, obviously, for girls. I mean, he's a good-looking kid with, with hair that, to the max. And Richie Sambora came in, as, was a great uh, double act for him. You, you always have the yin-yang on stage. So Richie became the sort of yang of, of John's yin. Uh, and um, we, we signed him to a deal. And okay, how um, hard
3: was it to convince the label, if at all?
4: Not that hard. Well, not that hard. I mean, I don't think that it was a rah-rah, let's go for it, it's going to be massive. But I, I felt it was, and I stuck with them, and I knew it possibly could be.
3: Okay, were you bidding against anybody else, or was Paul Graham no. the only?
4: No. no the, the, I think there was interest in, in Atlantic, some kind of interest, but really not really anyone. And, I, and one thing I'd, I'd never done in my life, actually, to tell you, well, is is go bid against it? I never would it bid against anyone else. If that goes on, I'm out. I, I don't do that. That's not what I do. I never. Yeah, well, did that.
3: tell us why.
4: Because then you're in a situation where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And 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 the bottom line is, if you if you're bidding, people are going to look at you with a microscope and say, "See, I told you so." That would never have worked for me, and, and thankfully, most of the bands you t- you discussed, and I can talk about other ones, and some of them are big, big stiffs, but I won't talk about those. But um, they've been generally bands that have been overlooked or underplayed, or whatever it is that no one really else is interested, in. and I saw their potential, and you know, it having come from my musical background, if you like, um, I've been lucky enough to. You know, on the scale of success and failure, <laughs> there's been plenty of failures, but successes have weighed a little more, and I've been able to make a living.
3: Okay, so you signed Bon Jovi. What's the next step in terms of making music?
4: Putting the album together and and having going into the studio with uh with um with Tony and and uh, Lance Quinn, who was the engineer, and putting the first album together uh with "Runaway" as a first single, and it did fairly well. I mean, but the most important thing, I think. At the same time, was getting Doc McGee involved, and that's another story in itself. Doc uh, and and I know that there's lots of history and lots of history written and rewritten and everything else. Doc what, came into my office at the very same time that I was looking at Bon Jovi uh, as as a potential uh, signing, and he was he was managing Pat Travers at the time and trying to get the band the, the label interested in Pat Travers. But I saw Doc, and again, I saw someone who went to each office and worked every office like they were the main company, like they were, they were running the company. I said, boy, this guy is a smart dude. He's, he's, he goes into every office and makes everyone feel like they're, they're king shit. And so he came into my office, and he said, yeah, Pat it." And I said, Doc, you know, Pat's great, but, I mean, what, who else are you working with? I think it was some R&B artist. Uh, I said, D- I've got this artist called Bon Jovi and he's about to make an- a record I-, I-, I want you to meet him and at the same time there was a couple of other managers who were sniffing around David Krebs and, um, and John Shear. but I wanted Dr. to meet him because I saw how he was working every office and making them feel like they were, they were running the company and that was important for me if I was party, party to do party to this whole thing it's a very bizarre thing and I'm telling you the. The truth, the sort of truth of what's happened, what happens in, what, what happened back in the day of how you had to work inside as well as outside. Uh, I had John meet with, uh, with uh, Doc, and it was love at first sight or a first, uh, first meeting. And they came to a deal. He had to meet the parents as well. And uh, Doc man, it was the first manager of Bon Jovi. And the first thing he did was say, Do the album, but get your ass on the road because right now you look like a little girl with, uh, with, with uh, you know, your purple uh, tight leather pants on. So he put them on the road with Rat and Scorpions and God knows what else. And, and to tell you the truth, he was fantastic, and he put them on the road with bands that he, want, that he wanted, and we wanted John and Bon Jovi to be the band that rocked with some great pop music and to learn how to work that audience. So he was very instrumental in in making Bunge the what they became.
3: Okay, so you make the first record, you have Runaway, you re-release in a better fashion. Now talk the second record.
4: The second record was uh was a sophomore kind of um, flop, if you like, in certain respects, because they had to read they had to write new songs. You know, John and, and the band had written some of the songs probably over like the last 10 years. So he had to write some new songs. And we had to decide who we uh, would um, rec- record and, uh, and produce it. Lance Quinn, who had worked at the power station, uh, he was there and the f- on the first record. He said, let's record it in Philadelphia. Uh, so we did. And to tell you the truth, it was a bit of a disaster. Um, it was a really very... The atmosphere was awful. The songs were not quite as good as the first album. And... Um, it was it was an okay album, but it you know, and, but it was not a great album, and and, but nevertheless, it did okay. It Was seventy eight hundred degrees Fahrenheit, which I never agreed with the uh, the title. It was an awful title. The cover. What was the it supposed to awful. mean? Uh, you know, uh, the, the boiling point of I don't know was John the boiling point of of, of stone or something. I, I really <laughs> don't know actually, to tell you the truth. It was not my idea. Uh, again, it was and, and neither do, it was like John's. John's vision, but the, the 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 recording was a terrible process. And in fact, I had to kind of fire lance, and that was a, a process process in itself. Um and um and get it finished by, by Tony actually. Um and uh Tony Tony uh, Tony Bongiovi uh, to mix it, um who uh, didn't want to do it, but he did because he got points. Uh, but it was a it was a not a very pleasant experience. Um, but it did the trick. In fact, in that he kept him out there, and John Doc kept him out there working. It wasn't a stiff. It was it was an okay second album. It was a sophomore kind of slumpy record, but he kept him out there. And then um, and then we uh, reassembled. If you if you were talking about Bon Jovi's career, yes. Okay, we we reassembled ourselves again after the touring, and. Um, I, you know, I got to know um, Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock uh, from from listening to a couple of albums And Bob. I was a f- fan of my old group again. This is, goes back to the fans and groups and, and the musicianship and everything else. And they were they. I think they just done Loverboy and uh, Honeymoon Suite. And I listened to those records and I thought, boy, they have a, a great sound and also the choruses and everything else were, were fantastic and everything else at the same time john and doc and the band knew that to go to the next level they needed to have number one a great producer number two songs that would cut through the the the, the mist the, the cut through the world of rock radio and aor radio whatever that meant uh, at the same time mtv was was the the big uh, uh the big knock her in the house. Um, so I, 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 another story. So um, I said, boy, you know, John, would you, you, would you think, what do you think about getting someone to write songs with you? And John, being the pragmatist that he is and being the, the driven person that, that would do most things to make sure he got there, he says, fine, who are, you of, who are you thinking about? And I said, well, I, I got introduced to this guy, Desmond Child, by... Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, who did who, and I, I'd learned like the year before that they, they wrote, lick it up. And I said, that's not a kiss song. That's, and I read and, and, and Paul and Gene said, you remember Desmond Child Rouge? I said, yes, we were on Capitol together. Anyway, these the stories intertwine. Yeah, so keep I said, going. This, this is great. <laughs> so I said, this guy, Desmond Child, apparently is really good because kiss, you know, uh, Paul and Gene have told me that he's a great songwriter. Why did not you guys get together? And he said, fine, no problem. Let, let let introduce me so that we did and they got together and they wrote songs together and i think i, I so i'll just say the rest is history because i wrote living on a prayer you give love a bad name bad medicine you know etc etc and bon jovi and they went into the studio in vancouver with bruce fairburn and, and bob rock and mike fraser being on tape hop. and they built their following, despite the fact that they were still, you know, on the road with all these other bands supporting it. But one thing that John was never afraid of and the band was never afraid of was playing. They toured and toured and they that was the key. They didn't they didn't let up. They knew that they had to continue to build their fan base, not just in North America, all over the world. Um so putting all these elements together, um as soon as the album was done.
3: Okay. The album, was it an easy process? And two, did you realize what you had?
4: First question, uh, easy process. Yes, it was. It was the most, it was the easiest process we had. And, and, and we, we knew absolutely a hundred percent when it came, when, when the album was mastered, absolutely hundred percent knew that this, we had it. We had something. This is going to be a big, big, big hit. I knew it. We all knew it. And Absolute, then what? You know, eccentric. there's a famous
3: story that they had to can the original cover. Since you worked at the label, what was the story there? Well,
4: that's true. That's that's a fact. Actually, uh, we you know that was um, there's a lot of that we had all the, all the other people involved in 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 the company wanted to be part of this success. So we I don't know who decided that uh, this girl with a pink uh, bikini that ripped off was a great idea for the title cut for the album cover. And we thought, boy, this is not a rock band. This is like, I mean, you want Billy Squire to, to go down the tubes, this is even better. Um, so actually John, and, and John was the one that said, holy shit, we can't do this. At the same time, there's about 50 to 60,000 units already pressed up in the, in the plant. So we held everything. And, and to, tell, to be honest, John and Doc said, stop the presses. We have to get a new a new cover, and John and uh, I think Mark Weiss went into this, it Went into their little studio, and John said, "Let's get a um, a, a plastic garbage bag, and I'm going to spray. So the tree went wet on this garbage bag. Put my finger across it. Take a picture of that. That's the cover. And all all power to him, because it was his idea, and we had to change things in in right in midstream, and that became the cover. and thank God that it did because. It, the other one is a disaster, um, or would have been looked at as a disaster, despite the fact that music inside the, uh, the LP, as it was then, uh, was great. But it would have been viewed, viewed like um, something we didn't want the band to be. So, yes, uh, that, that happened just as it was about to be released. Thankfully, we put the brakes on right at the last second, as far as the, um, the uh, visuals were concerned. And I think the first song out was um, Bad Name. I believe it was, and then uh, Living on a Prayer was the second, hour, second track of them.
0: With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
2: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
3: Okay, so a little bit slower. What happened? You put out the record. Does it react immediately? What's it like being at the belly of the beast?
4: Through the roof. I mean, it was, it was, uh, there are, there are times in your life, you know, there, there, are we all know there are, there are, there are peaks and valleys. Uh, and, and I just remember number one, hearing this album and knowing I knew that this was it, I knew it. And when you heard it on the radio and you saw it on MTV, we got Wayne, uh, um, Oh, the, the videographer. Uh, anyway, the guy who who does all the best videos to do the the video, which looked like it was on. You know, he was it was it was playing in front of. He had twenty thousand people when he was only playing in front of two thousand. If if that when he, when he was doing it, um, the video looked amazing. The song went on the radio. It immediately became a gigantic hit immediately, and the album just blew into number one. It was just it was it was like. It was like something that you, you, you rarely see in your lifetime. And it was, it was a spectacular time for everyone, for the company, for the band, for Doc and, and everyone else. And to tell you the truth for me, because I believed in him as, as someone who wanted this so badly and knew he had the potential of talent to do what he wanted to do and, and to see it through with other people helping him. So you know i again it was wasn't just John although John is a an incredible quick learner, and boy does he ever you know he's like a sponge who who takes it in and beco- it becomes him uh but he had all these other people behind him to make this probably one of the biggest albums uh of rock albums of all time
3: okay now at Geffen at this time the a and r people had a piece of the record. did you have a piece of Bon Jovi's records <laughs> Yes, I did. Okay, that's great. You still you you still get paid on them?
4: Uh, no, I don't because I, I no, I don't. I wish I did. Boy, that was uh, I. I you know I. I'm not sure. I, I, I could be locked down somewhere else. I guess in, in, in a cruise ship. No, I don't. But uh, at that time, yes, I did. I was. Well, uh, why enough. why
3: did the royalties end?
4: Because I quit the company.
3: Okay, so it was only long that you were there. Okay, at the same time, you're working with Cinderella. How do you get Cinderella?
4: Uh, Cinderella um, was an, another man from Phil- the Philadelphia area, New Jersey, Philadelphia area. Um, I think it was introduced to me by, again, the same manager, same, same agent, but again, John, you, uh, Tom, Kiefer. Uh, again, these things inter- intertwine and I can't put timelines. It's very difficult to put timelines in between who said what, when, and whatever. But I remembered. Uh, and Larry Mazer, who was the manager, contacted me and said, boy, you did a great job with uh, Bon Jovi. This, I've got this band, Cinderella. And I'd heard about them because Arthur Mann, the, the uh, Philadelphia lawyer, said there's got another great band in, out of the area. I went down to see Cinderella in a little, I can't, little club. Uh, I can't remember what the club was. And they weren't that good, to, to tell you the truth. Tom was fantastic. Tom was an incredible front man and uh, and uh, jeff i think was a good guitarist was great but the other two guys i, I th- but they they didn't hold up i said larry you know you've got someone in the front there that's great but you have to replace the other two guys and i'd heard and but and at the same time he gave me tom's i don't know how many uh, uh, demos he did there must have been at least 75 demos i mean we're talking about i mean, a prolific writer um And I listened to the demos and I would say 30 of those were worthy to put on an album, first album. So I said to Larry, put a great band together and I'll I'll give you a deal. Um, And he found two other players that fitted the mold that I think were worthwhile for Tom to front. And uh, I did the deal, there was no one else involved. I mean, it was almost like me doing something sight unseen, but I listened to the music that Tom was writing and um put put signed the band to polygram and got andy johns of all people to uh to produce that album which was a, a treat in itself <laughs> uh, to say the least but that was that was another that's another story um but anyway uh that first album i think it was night songs um at the same time then bon jovi's slippery When wet was uh, was was high on the charts that came out literally a little time after uh, "Slippery so Went Wet" and blasted into the charts as well. So I was, you know, I had two of the two of the top five albums that I discovered, and I was, I was hot shit.
3: Okay, a couple of questions. Anyone ever debate the name Cinderella?
4: Did Kiefer come with Cinderella? I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Yep, I think it was Kiefer and and Larry. You know, I, and I didn't dispute. It. I think. I thought it was fine. I thought you could play around with it. You could play around with the, the, the visuals. I mean, we did on the, you know, the, uh, the first couple of videos. They were funny. They were, they were, you know, they were kind of like... Um, in fact, I got John involved in one of the videos. Uh, again, this is the old MTV time when, when it was just when breaking a record was getting it on MTV and getting it on the radio. And then you're off to the races. Boy, that was the time when the jigsaw puzzle was five pieces, not 5,000 well put okay there
3: was never really another cinderella album what happened there
4: so they had they had nice songs and they had uh the follow-up which is uh that did well too and i can't remember the damn name i wish i could no that was a, a they had two really big big albums and then um i left <laughs> i left Polygram to, to run Atco, uh and um and they 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 still continued their career. John, of course, he went on to he went to New Jersey.
3: Okay, but a couple of questions. They said that Tom lost his voice. Is that true? That was probably after you were there Yeah, crashed. that was after.
4: Yes, he did. Yeah, I, I'm still friends with Tom. Tom's a great guy. I mean, he really is a wonderful guy and and a real talent. And and the truth is that we were we we locked onto the MTV Hair thing, uh, where and Tom really was sort of a blueser and he loved. He loved blues and, and the whole sort of the the, the blues thing, but um, yes, he did. He lost his voice. He, his um his he had nodules on his uh his um uh, vocal cords for a, quite a period of time. He was living in Nashville, and he told me that. He said he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to sing, but he got them back, and he's still in a great voice, which I'm happy about.
3: Were you were you still at Polygram when they made new, when Bon Jovi made New Jersey?
4: I was literally walking out the door when uh he was uh making new jersey
3: okay from my viewpoint i love slippery when wet but bon jovi in my viewpoint has never equaled that and i bought i even bought uh new jersey when it came out and was disappointed do you have any insight in? once again do you believe you were the special sauce what was going on
4: <laughs> boy but that's, if, if, if i thought that then then uh you know if i think that or thought that in any form in any way you know, then somebody shoot me in the head for God's sake. Um, no, uh, you know, I was certainly intrinsic. I really was, but everyone—it wasn't just me. It was the company. It was Doc. It was it was the agent. It was John himself. It was a band. It was everything. Um, but certainly, we had a chemistry together to make Slippery as as big and as good as it was uh, when I left. I mean, you know, when I left maybe there was a little lack of, you know, in intimacy with a label. I don't know. I mean, I, I, can't say for sure. Maybe John was getting a little, uh, bored. I mean, he was working his ass off. I mean, they do it. They were, they toured and toured, but I was there when they started it, but I, I wasn't really there when they finished. I was my, my next step was, was, uh, well, before we get to your next step, uh, when they would be
3: making these records, since you were a musician and you have experience, to what degree did you weigh in on the material in the studio? Not only say yes, certain thumbs up or thumbs down, say, well, you know, should we change this? Should we try this?
4: I, I actually did uh, quite a lot on, on some albums, not so much the Bon Jovi ones, because I was, I was there in the studio for sure in, in Vancouver with, with, I mean, uh, Bruce... Fairburn is a great, was a great musician, and Bob Rock himself is a great musician. You know, I'd, I'd listen to certain things, and they say, "What do you think? What do you think?" I wasn't one to pipe up and say, "I think you should do this," because uh, you know we had enough talent in the room to to uh, to know what was best and and uh, and say yes or no to. However, with Cinderella, I was a little more proactive, but uh, in both their live show and as well as writing um and when they to give you an insight about live uh when cinderella first went out because their record came out and they weren't really a live band yet and suddenly they became they were all over mtv they were all over the radio they had never done real gigs they played played a few club shows in philadelphia and they went out there and i can't remember who they went out with but they weren't very good and i went back to larry and went back to the band i said you have to videotape every damn show and take them, back to your ba- take, to ba- take them back to the bus and watch these shows and ask yourself, will you pay $20 to see this band? Watch it. You've got to watch this. And, and, and I have to say they took it to heart. And they watched themselves and said, boy, I made a mistake there. They, that, was, that, that choreography was awful. I should be doing this instead of that. Um, so, you know, they listened. So I said, do that at the same time. Um, you know, I'd, I'd sit down with Tom, and and in fact, um, okay, a little bit of uh, uh, insight. Right, which which uh, there's a song called um, whatever it was, but I, I co-wrote it. And I to tell you the truth, I said, Tom, you got to do this because this sounds better. And I co-wrote a couple of songs with Tom because I knew that sometimes he'd ramble on a chorus or a verse, uh, sorry, a verse and a B section, and didn't get to the chorus quick enough. So I'd work with him on On a musical level, I said, "You know, try this chord. Try, try stepping up a a fourth, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And he was very, he was very open to that and loved me being part of that. So, and did I you enjoy- did
3: you take credit for that? No. Okay. So, tell us how you end up going to Atco.
4: Well, uh, Atco was another story. Uh, so, you know, during the period of at Polygram, I I had Bon Jovi, I had. Uh, you know, I also, at the same time, had another band, Kingdom Come, which went blasted into the charts, into the top five, because I gave Bob Rock his first production. And, and you know, everyone screams and yells, oh, it's a Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, copy band, etc., etc. Well, you know what? It was perfect first time. And, and, and the band,
2: it was, it, it was all
4: over the radio. And, and at the same time, I was working with uh, Dexies and, and Tears of Fears, etc., and worked with some other... A couple of other bands which were ultimately successful in different fashions so i guess i was hot shit as they were you know at that time so and i i thought you know what i i'm looking at the people who run these companies i'd like to try it i really want to do something like this um and i they at polygram they said we'll give you we'll give you mercury we'll give you this and, they, and i'd already done what 82 to 87 88 six seven years i said i want to try something new and I got wooed by Geffen, by Irving, by, by uh, you know, all the, the, the players involved.
3: Okay, did you put it out there or did they find you?
4: No, I, I, I decided that I was going to, uh, to, I wanted to run a label. You know, I wanted to see what it was like. And, and to put a team together, because I put the team together. I, done, I put teams together as a band. I put teams together in working Records and 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 having the right managers and the right agents. And I wanted to see if I could put a team together to run a company. So I my my lawyer, um yeah, put it. I yeah, put it out this, and I I said I'm going to resign to PolyGram. They did not want me to resign. They offered me to be a label head of something else. And I, you know, even though I would have made me a lot of money, I would have kept the points for Bon Jovi, the points for Cinderella, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that, for me, and it's, this is going to sound bizarre, I think, to a lot of people. It wasn't about the money. It was about the challenge, and it was about the passion. So you know, I had okay. I said I gave up a couple of points. Okay, let me do something new. It's the same thing as as I talked to you about when I was on the road. It's time when when it feels like. I'm going to do the same thing with the same people again like a job and find the next Bon Jovi or the next Cinderella or the next, no, let me try something new. So, you know, I wanted to try something new and just to run a label with something new. So I got offered, uh, you know, to run a couple of companies, but I met with Steve Ross at Warner Music uh, a couple of times. I met with uh, Ahmet and Doug first and then Steve Ross. And he was the one... He was one guy that I was no impressed by. And the, reason, and, and the stories are, are I, I can give you hundreds of stories about why and what and everything else. And I met with Yatnikov, and you know, they, they took me around to you know, having dinners with hookers and God knows what else. That wasn't what I was. That wasn't who I was. It was like, come on. I want to run something which is something for me. They didn't know who I was. But Steve Ross sat with me, and he just come back from the Bahamas, I think. And we talked, and he asked me what I did, what I wanted to do, in a very kind of like easygoing fashion. And again, these are little little vignettes I have in my head. He uh, had a basket of little uh, uh, raffia, you know, knickknacks. You know, like you buy for a dollar in the in, in Bahamas, you know. Th- and I said, well, those, "Those are cool. Where'd you get them?" He said, we, "I just came back from the Bahamas for a meeting." He said, "You want one? Just a little dollar thing." And the fact that he just get, he gave me this little dollar knickknack, and, he was, and I, it just—it got to me. I thought, "Well, that's, He didn't offer me, you know, the, the a plate, you know, the private jet to this. Uh, yeah. he said, do "You want this little dollar knickknack?" And obviously, you had Warner Music at that time. You had, you know, you had Warner's, you had Electra, you had Atlantic, you know, Dog and 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 Armit and, uh, and he and but that incident and and his vision of having entrepreneurs in the company, someone who could do something without being told what to do and could make his company a profit, if you like, and also do well personally, financially, was his it was his MO. But I, I loved the way that he presented what it was, of course, what these was, was a spectacular company at that time. But that incident in particular was one which I walked away, I thought, no, he didn't have to do that. He, he could have said, I'll, I'll fly you to so-and-so, I'll do this and that and the other. But he gave me this little knickknack. And I walked away, I thought, well, you know, the, that kind of did it for me. And so I said, I'd like to resurrect this, this, uh, this company that has been dormant, at Co Records. And Ahmed um, said, sure, fine. I mean, let, let's let, go for it. Uh, Doug was a little iffy about that, but uh, that's neither here nor there.
3: Doug was iffy. Wait, wait, wait. That comes up. Like, Doug was iffy because
4: Doug was iffy because he saw this guy come into this company that had <laughs> that had all these successes at PolyGram, and at the at the time, Atlantic was um, was was kind of like in, in a they were kind of in a low period. And I I believe I think that potentially possibly he thought I was coming in as a replacement. That was so far from my my that was so far from my. My, uh, uh, my thought process, it was, it was beyond belief, but I believed that he was a little threatened by, by coming in to being head of ATCO alongside Atlantic Records. So, um, so he was a little iffy about me taking on ATCO company and putting a team together, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that's, that's another story which I can uh, embellish. <laughs> but um, we got along ultimately you know, uh, in, in the way that I guess one should.
0: With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
2: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice too, because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash This
1: is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future.
3: You have the Rembrandt, you have a hit, you have Piantera. So what's it like there running your own company?
4: The first, okay, the first uh, two or three years, fantastic. Amazing. Um, you know, I was given free reign um, the first year. Obviously, you had to build a team. And I kind of stole the best people from Polygram because they were kind of like going through their, their, their some machinations of being bought or wherever. Um, I got a really good team together. Um, I was lucky enough to have, you know, have a couple of pretty decent-sized hits straight away. Um, Pantera being one. And in fact, the, f- the funny story about Pantera was I was going to sign them to PolyGram, but I knew that I was leaving, and so I said to the attorney at the time, who's no, no longer with us, "Can you wait until I'm?" Uh, I whispered in his ear, um, and I signed them to to uh, to Adco. And, and and pantera was was a, a huge hit out of the box and Doug, this is a story about dog actually um he didn't know who pantera was he thought it was a, some kind of hip-hop <laughs> and he really did he thought it was some kind of like is, it, is this a new dr gray uh, um production and, um, and of course it wasn't but um it was great for the first two or three years then um in the f- third or fourth fifth year where it was I started losing, I realized I started losing perspective of what I was in it for. I, I came into meetings and I, I had my general manager. The company became bigger. We, we, we were just a rock label. We, we I took on the mantle of, of uh, Ruthless Records, of all things. Uh, we, did, you know, we had a couple of very big hits on Ruthless, um, which is a hip-hop, as you know, Ruthless Records. So it was Jerry Heller and uh, some pop records. And, uh, and I remember one thing in particular. Again, these little points of, of uh, career uh, career uh, development and why you did things, why you didn't do things. I was sitting in my general manager's office and um, I heard this song um, uh, on the radio. Um, it was called Sincerely Yours by... Um, uh, oh, no. I'm black. Sorry. I'm, I'm, it's a long day today. But uh, since the, I, said, I said to Harry, Harry Palmer, "Harry, what, I, I like the song. What is this? I've, I've heard it before." And it looked at me like I was joking. And I said, he said, "It's ours. It's, num- it's, it's, on, it's in top number one." That was a turning point for me. I, you know, and I went home and I thought, "Boy, I've lost perspective of who I am." I was wearing a suit, you know, and I and I and I thought, i just lost. I'm, I'm losing." I'm losing Derek. I'm losing Derek Schulman as, as, as someone who loves music, loves being involved in the music business. And the last couple of years were, were not that good. I didn't like it. And I decided to, um, I I to quit. They didn't want me wait, to wait, quit.
3: Wait, 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 wait. Are we rewriting history? Didn't uh, Doug sort of push you?
4: He wa- he wanted to push me big time, big when I was in Russia. Absolutely, he offered me co-chairman because he wanted Sylvia Rohn in there as well. But he, I was I was up at the same time. No, I'm not re- rewriting history. Um, there was a lot of intrigue going on because Time Warner was was involved, but Doug was certainly uh, um, very much uh, afraid that I was, you know, doing get, getting in his way. He taken he's taken a lot of. Um, He's taken a lot of uh, uh, power away from Bob Margato and that team there. it um, kind of drifted away. Uh, yes, he certainly wanted me away out of there, but nevertheless, I had a contract and I had a company. However, at the same so, it was, you know, so he, we, we met when I came back from Russia. And when, it was, when I was out of the country, um, he tried to do a, have a coup, but it didn't quite work. So I came back. And they said, well, you could be co-chairman. You've got X number of points and everything else. I said, Doug, I'm out of here. They kept me there for another year and a half, actually. So I said, no, I don't want to do this. It was the same thing as I did when I said, you asked me about leaving Gentle Giant. No, it was was, was not the money. I didn't want to do it. I'm over. See you later. So, no, yes, Doug was certainly certainly trying to – get rid of uh, this this uh, guy who may be you know on the on the prowl to get his job uh but nevertheless um when he offered me to be the co-chair with sylvia and and, did, and get lots of points and lots of money and xxx i said no i'm out of here my my attorney went apeshit at me so what are you talking about so i'm done I'm, I'm resigning they wouldn't let me go for a year and a half because i had a contract so I had to literally stay there and work with Irving on, on some things. Uh, but it was really kind of like a, a sinecure. You know, I was not allowed to go anywhere. It's like an NDA, if you like. But I had to be a part of the Warner Group Music Group. So you asked me how it was. The first three or three and a half years, three, four years were great. Last two were awful.
3: And you were working with Irving on what? With Giant then? Yeah,
4: Giant. Yeah, we, we, do, we did something together on Giant. I put some... Records together, but it was really not, I was really working through a contract that I was with Warner Music, effectively.
3: Okay, so your contract runs out, then what?
4: Then um, I took a time out, um, six months, and you know, again, the, you you decide you know, what what is it you want to do. I mean, running the, running a big corporation and being, looking at myself in the mirror with a suit and listening to something on the radio that I didn't, didn't even know belonged to us really got to me. And I tore the suit off myself and put, put uh, shorts and t-shirt back on and said, the hell, i got to get back to being Derek again. Um, and um, about six months into, not sure again what to do. Thankfully, I had enough to live on and we were not financially strapped I, I i was living in new york my wife and i had two kids in school and everything else um i got a call from a, a, an old friend um case vessels at roadrunner records and uh, he said what are you doing i said i'm not much i'm deciding what to do he said would you mind um we meet and because I, I you know i've got this label and in Soho, we were doing. We've got a couple of good metal acts, but I'd love to see the company become a big label. And I said, "Okay, let me see what you've got." So I, I, I met with Case. I knew Case from uh, from Europe over the years. I knew him when he worked for RCA, and um, and I met with him. And I saw him, saw the people in the office. And at that time, he was he was trying to build a label. Uh, kind of an all-purpose label. He had a dance label. He had a hip-hop label. He had this and that and the other. But when I looked inside of the company, there was all these kids with like tattoos and and and, uh, and piercings and God knows what. This is a rock label. That's the case. You're, you're, you're doing something. You're spending money on all these other things, and you've got kids in there who love typo Negative or 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 um, you know Fear Factory, and you're trying to break uh, this hip-hop stuff and and salt and pepper or or some some other thing from uh, another dance label or you have to get rid of things and focus on what you do best so he, and i don't think he understood that he had a brand so i kind of uh for a year i kind of consulted under the radar and became the consultant to get rid of some of the stuff the chaff from the wheat and then i became president of roadrunner records um and, and i really enjoyed that because it was to, to focus on what that was and, and, and what it could be was was a lot of fun because it was an independent label. It wasn't run by a board of directors. We went, you know, whereas, you know, Time Warner and that whole situation there was became a nightmare. When it was Warner Music Group, it was great. When it became Time Warner, which, again, is another story entirely, uh, that's when the Dog Thing and Margatta and Fuchs and everything else became Became a mess, but this is a whole thing—a a new independent company that was run by this guy, Case Vessel, as he wanted it be to be a, a big, powerful label, but to keep it's uh, it's um to keep whatever he had. I don't think he even knew what he had because his love was more Wagner than uh, than the Coal Chamber or and or you know Slipknot. He he hated that that stuff, but I saw what he had in the company and the people who who he'd hired. And I said, this is what you're going to do. Focus on what you do best. So I became president of, of, of Roadrunner. And it was a great time. How did you sign Slipknot or was Slipknot already signed? No, Slipknot wasn't signed. What I did was, was again, number one, move away from the stuff that he, he thought could make a popular company popular and focus on what was best. And the people there were great. They were fantastic. They were really passionate people, passionate kids that would work 24 hours to 24 seven to get the rock stuff going. Um, I think the biggest. Breakthrough. Yes. It was, was number one getting coal chamber and fear factory to a different level. Uh, they were bands that would already been signed by Monty Connor, you know, and he was a great A and R guy. There's some very good people in there, but I brought in a guy called Dave Lonco from RCA as a head of promotion because promotion still meant something in those days, radio promotion. Um, and, um, and then I think that Monty and myself brought in, Monty brought in uh, Slipknot uh, together with me, but I knew when I saw Slipknot play, he said, what do you think? I thought, I looked at them and I felt the same way as I did with Pantera. I knew they had it. They were never going to be on MTV. They were never going to be on, on the radio, but boy, they could play to fans all over the damn world. They were, they were a purely fan-based, you know, uh, I, I said, this is the band we're going to spend a lot of money on. This is a green light band. And of course it went, it's the first album went to the race. It became huge. And, and that made the company I can, in certain respects made the company take a big step into the big mainstream rock label, sort of uh, independent rock label. And then the biggest next step, if you like, and then probably the, probably the worst step and the best step again was, uh, spreading, the, the, uh, spreading the, 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 the core from the hardcore metal world into a more uh, kind of um, uh, melodic, bigger uh, label. And in that respect, why I, signed, why I brought in Dave Longco as a head of promotion was uh, to get some of the bands that we had signed on the radio. For instance, uh, um, uh, Fear Factory did a song called Cars and that got on the radio. Typo Negative got a song on the radio, but we signed, I signed a band called Nickelback. Uh, uh, Ron Berman had brought in several tapes and Nickelback was one of them. And I kept listening to this song uh, um, on the first album and I kept playing and I kept playing. I said, this guy's a great writer. Who who the hell is it? And Ron said, "It's a guy called uh, uh, Chad Kroger. And he's got a brother and it's a band called Nickelback. I said, tell me about them. So he told me about them. we went to see them in, in Vancouver, um, and they were fantastic writers. And we, we signed them, and the first album uh, was, had, had the uh, black, again, I'm sorry, I'm lacking on, on tracks and everything else. The first album did very well with, that, uh, with the first track that we put out. You know, Dave was able to get tons of airplay. And, the, and then they put together the second album, which is, again, another milestone in, I guess, my career, if you like, Silver Side Up, with How You Remind Me. When you hear that song, How You Remind Me, I knew as soon as I heard that, that was going to be an absolute home run smash, no matter who did it, how, did, how, it, how it was done. And of course, Dave got it to the top of the charts. So and Nickelback became massive. It made a lot of money for the label. And... And it became something of a millstone round Case's neck and perhaps mine because unfortunately Case, having just seen been part of a little company that did very well in a little world, suddenly opened up to become, become a gigantic uh, label that took a lot of income and he wanted more of it. And those kind of albums and those kind of songs come along once every 10 years. They don't come along every damn six minutes. Uh, so trying to look for the next one spending money to do that was the wrong direction for the company. And ultimately, uh, I, it wasn't right for me. It wasn't right for case. And he, the company became, um, there was a lot of things that happened to the company and that put me off being part of it because he was going, he did, he did, he made a mistake in, in Europe, uh, by, um, putting the company in, in, a, in a financial scrap in North America. And that stopped me being able to do what I could do in North America. I said, case, this is not going to work. So again, I said, I can't do this anymore. And, and he, took the, he had to sell the company uh, at, a, you know, at a fairly good profit, but certainly not what he, was, what he should have been worth when it was done. So that was, uh, that was the Roadrunner uh, world and, and the Roadrunner days, which are great. For the most part, really were they were fantastic, and since then, I've been kind of consulting uh you know various labels and 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 dilly about and, and and doodling and becoming an old fart.
3: okay, why does everybody hate nickelback
4: i I, I think' it's a to tell you the truth, I don't think they do. I think it's a guilty pleasure for most people, but I think that's it's, it's, it's the incarnation of corporate rock as we all know, and you know what? Yes, it is, but you know what? So is a lot. I mean, I think corporate rock is, you know, corporate corporate rock is is um, is, is part of what we're doing. Look, corporate rock is everywhere. I mean, I think TikTok and, and YouTube and everything else is corporate rock as well. So I think it became the uh, it became the sort of uh, target for for all things that were ba- That were the man, if you like. Which, which, of course, it was to a certain degree, but nevertheless, uh, it certainly was not something that people disliked when they bought it, and it's not a band that people don't didn't didn't not like when they were going, and they're still, you know, they're still around, and they still write good songs, and and um, it's 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 funny because when I was there, they weren't the sort of target of of uh, being the, the most uncool band in the world. You know, it's the same as Bon Jovi's the most uncool guy in the world, you know, so like like he cares, you know, uncool doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean shit. You know, sorry, I don't believe in cool or uncool. I believe in, in, in first thing is is do what you do, do what you do best. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it done.
3: Okay. Wait, I just add in here that you, you don't believe in what? Being uncool or cool. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Now, well, people with this turn of the century, that's when uh, How You Remind Me came out. 2001, one, two was really big. Uh, while all this was going on, we all the crazy. You know, all the corporate stuff happened in the 90s with Warner, etc. But then we had the disruption of Napster. Everybody's bitching about stealing music. And everyone's bitching about Nickelback. But they don't realize that hip hop is dominating the internet. Correct, And hip-hop gave it away for free with mixtapes, Then hip-hop was on SoundCloud, such that at the turn of the decade, when streaming really becomes big with Spotify, suddenly it's all hip-hop. Correct. Okay. As someone who has made his bones and really understands rock, A, is there a future for rock? Is there a place for rock today? And B, does it have to be adjusted to regain market share, to use a corporate term?
4: well is there a market for rock yes of course there is uh i mean all these big festivals all over the world which are non-existent right now of course in this day and age um they're all headlined by rock bands however you know these are rock bands that made their made their mark in the 70s so i mean they're going to be dying soon um so uh yes it's a, it's a gigantic marketplace i don't think the hip-hop world and the pop world and the youtube world and the TikTok world can, can fill that gap. Uh, but certainly as far as a live, uh, uh music business is concerned, it's, it's, it's hundred percent rock driven. Of course it is. But nevertheless, on the, on a different level, you'd be surprised and and I'm, I, I'm surprised and, and, and uh, I'm surprised that the world of hip hop, um, is actually a lot more musical and musically, musically diverse, then most other worlds, uh, most other businesses are concerned. And I'll give you a case in point. Um, I just got, I had a gold record presented to me by a band called Run the Jewels, um, who, who have, uh, has a song, which is a, a song called Legend Has It, which is the lead song on Black Panther. They sampled one of Gentle Giant's songs. And that world has gone back to listening to some of the music which was authentic, I guess the 70s prog music, believe it or not, Common and, and uh, the guys at Roots, they're all fans of music, rock music of the 70s and, and progressive music. Actually, that's a very interesting fact that there is a very interesting sidebar that I don't think no, not, not many people know about. They're the most musically uh, interested and interesting people that are around, actually, in some respects. So uh, to answer the question about rock being viable, of course it is. Right now it isn't because it's it's all about live. And, and as far as streaming is concerned, you know, I, I see that people are pissed off that they are not get off streaming and and and, they're, and Spotify's uh, Dining Elect is becoming this vilified kind of guy. That's bullshit. I'm sorry. You know, it's, it's silly. You know what? You Because know, you know, back in the day, I, I, I was thinking when I was reading about all this stuff and people complaining that He's, he's a greedy fuck and all that stuff. You know, and I'll go back to the, my, my beginnings of, in, the, in the music business. When I first got a deal, and this is, i am got to take myself all the way back now to 1966, 67, um, as Simon Dufourne and the Big Sound, we, were, we had a great following. We were playing our asses off. We played, we played triples and, and quadruples, if you've heard of them. You played an afternoon show You played an evening show you played an all-nighter and then you you literally do these these shows all over the country all over all over uh uk and in and europe too and you became pretty damn good at what you did you know you if you didn't then you didn't become a band um and then we got a record deal and our record our record deal and our record deal was based on uh a demo which was sent up to emi so EMI invited us up to to, their, to Abbey Road, and we had to do a full set on stage at Abbey Road with the producers, including George Martin, Norrie Paramore, et cetera, et cetera, all the producers looking at us, sitting there like this. We had to do our full show. Arms
3: crossed for those uh, in the non-video our, uh, world.
4: <laughs> arms crossed. And we did the full set of Simon Dufresne, the Big Sound set. And lo and behold, we got, a, we got a deal, a record deal. But the record deal was one single. and That was a record deal. You know, and uh, the one single came out. We were fortunate enough to have it hit the lower parts of the top 40. So we did another record. But the record deals in those days, they weren't album deals. They were one singles. I don't think the Beatles had a record deal. I think there was a one single deal. Love Me Do. That was it. So, I mean, back in the day, it was about the singles, and we did singles. So we, and that's how we built our, built our fan base, our reputation. The album thing was a whole different animal. That was the 70s. But the 60s were all about record deals. And even bands like Deep Purple, who was, you know, uh, they were, uh, me and Gillen and, and Roger Glover were in a band called Episode Six. They did singles. You know, you can, uh, the Idol Race, uh, Robert Plant was in the Band of Joy. They did singles. You know, so all these bands—that—that that was the day when you did singles, and you were lucky to get a deal, and that was that's how you got a deal. You did a whole set in front of these producers, and you were lucky to get a deal. So now I'm looking at, at these people saying, Oh, three three or four years for an album, et cetera, et cetera." Okay, you know, I understand. I did albums too, but you know what? It is what again. I'll I'll, I'll quote our our favorite. Uh, uh, <laughs> our favorite guy who was uh, sitting in the way House, it is what it is um and then that's an, that's ironic by the way i'm sorry that's a bit of this irony for it uh you know um it is about the song it is about what it is and and it's today's world and not 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 last year's or last last months or or 10 or 15 20 years ago and i i do have uh sometimes a problem in Talking to someone of those of those periods that, and they have all these golden platinum albums on their walls, and saying that's not going to happen anymore. It's over. You will not have those anymore. And they they're they're they you know, they're shrugging their shoulders, thinking why? Because that's that that was then, and this is now. You know, it's it's it's, it's a bizarre twist. But I, the the weirdest twist for me is. Having these uh, hip hop uh, uh, musicians hearkening back to music which they thought was was relevant and authentic, and and I just got a gold record, as I said, from Run the Jewels uh, with, with uh, you know with um, Killer Mike and, and LP. They were, they're huge fans of mine, and that's bizarre. Not of what I've done with Bon Jovi or Pantera, but my as a musician, and that's the key to it. Well, that brings us full circle, literally,
3: starting with Gentle Giant, ending up with Gentle Giant. Listen, this has been so informative. You tell a great story. Thanks so much for doing this, Derek.
4: My pleasure, Bob. It's great to see you again as well.
3: Till next time, this is Bob Lefson.
2: at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
0: Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
1: A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski
4: slopes!
0: Wait! Did we just invent California?
4: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.